Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1? I want to start a series, uh, since this is Communion Sunday, uh, I was led to start a series simply on the priesthood ministry of Christ. And what better, there's no better book on that of how Christ is the better priest, the better mediator uh, than the book of Hebrews. And so um, during our communion, uh, communion Sundays, I would like to go through the book of Hebrews. And I think we'll probably be here for about 100 years uh, because if communion comes every once in a, once in a month, uh, we're going to be here for quite some time. And if you imagine, we were only going through two verses uh, we're, it's going to be a while, but the title of this sermon is The Supreme Revelation from God, that is Jesus Christ. The Supreme Revelation from God. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. He is not simply a prophet. He is not simply a teacher. He is not simply uh, someone who told stories. He is the Savior. He is God incarnate. And Father, uh, it is a shame that they have clouded who he is. We pray, Father, that you and your word would, be, would come out clear, that your son would be glorified, that we would get a sense of this, that we would be, our hearts would be once again warmed to the glory of Christ, that we would uh, bow to him, that we would trust in him for salvation alone. We love you. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 1, the text is God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. What is the Bible about and why does it matter? People will start, especially in political arenas, they'll say, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, and people will start to chop up what the Bible says. Well, it doesn't mean that, or it doesn't mean this, or that's not the theme of the Bible. There's so much confusion if you ask your friends at work, you ask your friends at school, you ask them, what does the Bible mean? They're, they're very confused. Some may say it's just a collection of stories. Others will say it's it's a good book for the people who actually believe in it, but it's not for me. Folks would say that it's just a good teaching to kind of, it's like a manual for life, and then that's it. They leave it there. Those all fall short of what Scripture really is. See, the, the writer of Hebrews is writing to three groups of people. Uh, he's writing to believers in Christ, and then he's, who are Hebrews, who are Jews, and he's writing to Jews who maybe believe in the facts of Christ, but have not surrendered their lives. And then there's folks who don't believe and don't surrender at all. And so as we go through and as we march through this book, we're going to see how the writer of Hebrews is addressing this, and he addresses it through Scripture. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, he's going to be going back to the Old Testament because the audience should be well aware of what the Old Testament teaches about the coming Messiah and that he has already come. And how do we glean information for our lives about this? It is going to tell in very loud terms who Christ is. There is no ambiguity. There is no clouds. There is no fog. It's going to be clear of who Christ is. 
Christ throughout of Hebrews is going to be the better priest, the better mediator, the better sacrifice. He is whom we should place all of our hope, all of our faith and trust in. So here's some ideas. I was reading in a Newsweek editorial magazine. One, one guy wrote an editorial. The Bible is a very human book, he wrote. It was written, assembled, copied, and translated by people. It has flaws, contradictions, and theological disagreements. You have to try to discern the message for yourself. He goes on to say, uh, the real point of the scriptures is don't judge. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You notice he just kind of skipped over the first part. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself, right? The first the vertical, then the horizontal. And he skips all of that. One cult writes it like this. The Bible is a revelation from God. It provides practical, divinely inspired counsel for daily life. It reveals Jehovah's purpose for the earth and for mankind, as well as it shows how he will eliminate the causes of human suffering. The Bible explains, explains that God has been willfully misrepresented and tells how he will settle his universal challenge. There are bits of truth in there. There are bits of truth, right? But it is not the main thing. It is not the central theme of what God has called us to preach. It's not the central theme of Scripture. The central theme is, can be clearly seen in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And so God gave this passage to you this morning so that you would trust in the overarching message of the whole Bible, namely the person of Jesus Christ. That is what the Bible is about. We are a people in need of redemption. We are a people, because of our sins, we have been separated from God. And there, God has sent His Son, God, very God, very human, put on flesh, dwelt amongst us, died on the cross for our sins. And if we trust in Him, we will be forgiven. So to miss the very central theme of Scripture is to miss the whole point. I remember... Sometimes um, I would have to read a book, and it was a reading comprehension kind of book. And I'd read the thing, and I would, say, and then you're supposed to summarize what it means. And I would write it, and the teacher says, you missed the whole point, Angelo. Christ is the point of Scripture. And if there are sermons and messages and, and talks at churches, it's sad to say, in anything that's even labeled Christian, and it doesn't have the aroma of Christ, the center of Christ, the resources in Christ. It is not what Scripture teaches. It is sub-Christian at best. And so God gave this passage to you so that you would trust in the overarching message of the whole Bible, namely the person of Jesus Christ. Now, to trust in the central message of Scripture, that is Christ, you must comprehend two qualities of God's revealed word. And this is why it matters as we come to take communion together. Okay? It's not just that someone died on the cross. It is the worthiness of the person who died. The high stature of the person who died. It is the greatness of the person who died. And so we're going to do a study on who he is. So number one, verse one. 
I only have two points, okay? Verse 1, understand the process of revelation, okay? Understand the process of revelation. Now, he says here in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, and this is, this is how we know we could bank and place our life on the bedrock foundation of what Scripture teaches. So first, revelation, let's talk about that. Revelation is the product of God disclosing himself through Scripture. Okay? Revelation is the product of God disclosing himself through Scripture. And we're going to see here, how did God do that? Okay? How do I know not to listen to some whack job who just says, hey, uh, I've, I've heard from God and now you have to follow me, right? How do I know that? Well, I weigh it to what Scripture says. Now, first, God initiates true revelation. Notice he says, God, after he spoke long ago, it doesn't start with man. Man's research and man's study and man's knowledge to kind of know what happens after death, to know what is real, to know who God is, to know what the supernatural is all about, always falls short. There is glimpses of truth. There is portions of truth, but it becomes distorted. We are caught in time and space. We are at the very mercy of God to reveal himself. Now, this, is, this ought to be of no surprise to us. If I'm at a coffee shop and I meet somebody and I say, Hi, how are you? And the person turns around and doesn't talk to me. And I say, Hi, my name is. And they ignore me and walk away. I will never really get to know who that person is. Why? I am at the mercy of the person to reveal themselves. We, fallen as we are, apart from Christ, okay, because our sins have separated us from God. Apart from Christ, we are at the mercy of God to be the initiator. He has to take the first step. You see, all other religions are, well, if I do this, and if I do that, and if I treat my body harshly, and if I pray on my knees for 50 days straight, and if I fast for 40 nights, and if I don't eat any meat, and if I don't do this, and if I don't do that, then I could reach to some level of nirvana or some transcendental form, or I could shoot myself into an enlightened stage. Or other religions say, I could kind of bear the weight. If I just do all these good things, then God is going to accept me in the end. Friends, I tell you, that is not the case. And in fact, God says, you would know nothing about me were I not to disclose it to you myself. God says, he initiates true revelation. And there's a big problem here. And this is why when you talk to folks about who God is, they go, well, God for me is this, and God for you is this, and God is, the way I view God is this way and that way. Friends, the reason why we view God differently and different peoples view God differently is because the Bible says our minds and our hearts have been warped. Let me show you. This is not me talking. This is Romans. Go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. 
In Romans chapter 1, God is, has to initiate revelation. It has to start with God the Father. If it doesn't start with God the Father, we are at a loss. Communication has been cut off because of our sin. Notice he says in Romans chapter 1, verses 21. Okay, And now he's talking about the world in its unbelief. He says, for even though they knew God, that is, uh, that is they know about him, they know that he exists, they know by creation that there's a God, there's a higher power. You talk to people, every time they say, well, you know, just think about your higher power. Give me your best positive thoughts. That's how they, that's how they conceive of God. Whatever your God is, pray to that, right? So in the heart of man, apart from Christ, there is this view that there is a higher being. And so it says here in verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So in their hearts, in their minds, they thought of these things, but they, they didn't, it didn't come to fruition. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And this is what, this is what man does apart from Christ. Verse 23, look carefully. And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Uh, my wife and I and my kids were living in a country where we saw this. We lived and we served in a country for four years where we saw this, where people were worshiping trees and they worshiped a monkey and they worshiped um, a dog and they worshiped rats and they worshiped the goddess of death. And as we were there, they, I saw it in, in stark contrast of who the true God is. They exchanged the glory, the holiness, the purity, the righteousness of God himself, the incorruptible God. They, and in their hearts, they know that there's a God. They know that there is a higher power. They know that there is something beyond the grave. But because they don't have Christ, what do they do? They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for that of birds, crawling creatures. And of man himself. Now, don't kid yourself. America does the same thing. We may not worship monkeys as much. And we may not worship the goddess of death. And we may not do that. But notice, what else do they trade God for? What do they trade God for? He says here, they trade God for, verse 23, exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man tell you what America does. Apart from Christ, America, the man, the woman, becomes the very arbiter of the universe itself. Instead of God sitting on the throne as judge, the human being now judges God. I am the captain of my fate. I am the pilot of my soul. I decide what is right and wrong. I choose what is morality, not this God. I am God. And so what happens is, instead of God creating man in his image, man has created 
God in his image. The Bible goes on to say in Romans chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, that there is none righteous, there is not even one. There is none who understands. Listen, this is what God says. There is none who seeks for God. So apart from God revealing himself, we would be at a loss. Now, back in Hebrews, it is initiated, true revelation is initiated by God. Second, true revelation, or you could, I could put it in the verbiage of your notes, God protects true revelation. So God initiates true revelation. God protects true revelation. Notice he says here, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets. And there's three words I put there, conveyance, authentication, and completion. Boy, how are we ever going to finish the book of Hebrews? We're just, that, was, that was the first word, God. After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets. Now, there's conveyance, authentication, and completion. How does God protect his revelation, his self-disclosure? How does he do that? How are we to identify that? There are a lot of false teachers out there, right? How are we to know who to believe? First, there is... It's conveyance. So go ahead and add this. I didn't add it on your notes, but go ahead and add this. Number one, under God protecting his true revelation. Number one, conveyance. You could add this to your notes. That means this is how God gave us his word. Okay? There is this process in 2 Peter. Okay? 2 Peter, just a few books after Hebrews. In 2 Peter chapter 1. And verse 20, he says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, okay, prophecy is a direct revelation of God upon a person who is selected by God, commissioned by God to reveal God's plan. A prophet, a prophet is not someone who decides to be a prophet. A prophet is not someone who's, who declares himself a prophet. A prophet is someone who God has called to be a prophet, okay? And so here in verses 20 and 21, he says, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever written by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The word therefore moved is the same word that he uses in the book of Acts as a wind to carry sails. And so how God revealed himself is, is he chose specific individuals, commissioned individuals, who would declare his will. Now, how do you know who these, that's the next question, right? I want to know who to trust. I want to know how, to, how, how could we determine what's the truth? Well, first, he, uses, he used prophets. Second, how can I tell that the prophets are the right prophets? That is a good question. Because sometimes you go to some churches and a guy will jump up and he'll say, I'm a prophet. And then he'll start to say, I know what you, you can do with your life and I have seen your future. Are we to believe someone like that? 
Is that what God calls a prophet? Notice, I don't think that's what God does. Authentication. There is authentication. Notice, still in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, but false prophets arose among the people. This is the case, brothers and sisters. Okay? That there are folks who claim to say who God is, what Christ is about, and the Bible says that they're false. How do you know that they're false? They introduce destructive heresies. They don't stay in line with Scripture. They don't cut it straight. They're not clear with the Bible. They play games with the Bible. They play theological gymnastics with the Bible. They don't just preach it like it is. Okay? They deny the master who bought them. That is, they, they do not give Christ the glory. They make him less than who he is. Okay? Verse 3, many will follow their sensuality because of them. And so they have their own, their own motives of sin and self. But let me tell you how serious God holds this. This is extremely serious. That God would protect his true revelation so that you and I could come to see who Christ is. And uh, I want to take you to Jeremiah chapter 23. Now this is some powerful words. There are some rough words here. okay? But I want you to see that when God sends his prophets... And when he commissions his prophets, that they're under his authority. And those who speak in their own independence, apart from the prophecy of God, are very dangerous. This is where we get cults. This is where we get folks who just veer from the word of God. This is where we get people who will go and live by themselves in a compound and believe this one thing and then blow up a building. This is where we this is where all these derivations come, okay? They don't stick to the word of God. And God holds this very seriously. Notice he says here Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 20. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last day you will clearly understand it. Look at verse 21. I did not send these prophets. These are false prophets. Are there false prophets? Yeah. Are there false prophets now? Yeah, there are. And God is saying, right, if they're not cutting it to the word, if they're not staying close to what Scripture says, God is saying, I didn't send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. If they stood in my counsel, they would have announced my words to my people. Look at 25. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams? Look at verse 28. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word like truth. Verse 30. No, verse 29. Is not my word like fire and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Therefore, I am against the prophets, false prophets, okay? who use their tongues and declares, the Lord declares, behold, I am those who have prophesied false, I am against those who have prophesied against false dreams. My people astray because of their falsehood. 
All this to say, how do you know that what they say is of God? Does it cut straight to the word? Does it come true? And the Bible says, if they are not speaking according to his word, he says, I am against them. This is why it is no small thing to say, oh, I think God is telling me something and you need to change your life. Oh, I think I know what to do with your life. It is no small thing. You are acting presumptuously and speaking on behalf of God. And God says, I never said that. You ever have someone um, in life say, well, didn't you say this? And you said this? And, and you never said that at all? Imagine how irritated you feel. You ever get that way? Or someone says, you said that and you didn't say it. I get so bugged. I never said that. Right? Imagine how God feels. People who stand up saying, this is what God says. And they're making it from the imagination of their own mind. They're not cutting it straight to God's word. God says, I am against them. Because what, le what it leads to is Distortion, misdirection, hurt hearts, broken hearts. Um, I have a lot of stories about that, but I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to keep going. But I've seen some train wrecks where folks will use it as manipulation. It's manipulation. Guys, please listen to me. If you take anything away... If they do not use the word of God and they do not cut it straight in its plain reading, it is manipulation. Here, and it's, it, God protects his word by prophecy, by con, its conveyance, its authentication, and also by its completion. And you could write here, in its completion, Revelation chapter 22, he says, if anyone adds to the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life. And this is what I believe to be one of the salient, clearest examples that prophecy for this age has ended. It's done. And so we have exactly all that we need in Scripture. Right? Now, Half of the verse. Let's keep going, okay? Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Now, so God initiates true revelation. God protects true revelation. And God compiles true revelation. He compiles true revelation. And I, I want everyone to say this with me. The doctrine of progressive revelation. Can everyone say that? The doctrine of progressive revelation. Say it again. The doctrine of progressive revelation. Now, you're saying, what, what are you saying? Okay? okay. I believe that when you teach scripture, you have to make it as simple as possible. Yes, I totally believe that. But I also believe that there are certain terms that we as Christians have to be versed in. And one of the doctrines, and all doctrine means is teaching. Please understand that, okay? All doctrine means is teaching. 
progressive revelation simply means that as the Bible was being laid out and as the books were being compiled, that revelation built on itself. Okay? God's word built on itself. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. That's all it's saying. That revelation is progressive in nature. All that to say that God's word came in steps. That's easy, right? So it's the, give it to me one more time. The doctrine of what? Progressive revelation. Now, he's going to say this in many portions and in many ways. Now, the definition for that, in various parts, in many portions you could translate it, various parts or bit by bit or fragmentary. You can paraphrase it a little bit at a time. A little bit at a time. Or it says in many portions and in many ways. In various ways, in many manners. And so the way that God revealed himself to the prophets, those commissioned men, those chosen men, not self-appointed, God-appointed men, right? Is he revealed himself through dreams, through visions, through um, through the burning bush, you remember, in, in Exodus, as he speaks. Sometimes in when Jesus was uh, baptized from a voice from heaven. So there were different portions and different ways. How did God reveal himself? He did it in different ways, right? Do you remember the writing on the wall? Or do you remember how God would reveal himself to Moses? Remember Moses says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And he says, you hide yourself in the cleft of the rock and I will reveal my back to you. He was speaking anthropomorphically. He was speaking in man language, right? So there's different ways that God revealed himself. And they all built on each other. So what is he saying in this doctrine of progressive revelation? Now, let me give you an example, okay? Let me give you an example. This is the example of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through the book of Genesis, okay? Now, we're not going to read the whole book of Genesis. No, that was not my plan, okay? But I have to show you certain verses how the information about the Messiah starts to build because of the progressive nature of Revelation. First, Genesis chapter 1. Let's go to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. This talks about the oneness and plurality of God at the same time. God is one in one way and he is three in another. That's what the teaching of the Trinity, it's not full-blown here, but you see it. There's elements of it, right? Verse 26, let us, see, notice he says, 26, then God said, singular, God singular, said, let us, us, plural, make man in our image, right? So what do we know about God? Well, first, I know that he is, there's some idea that he is singular in one way, and there's another idea that he is plural and another. Hey, Manny, can you hit the AC? I think it turned off. Okay. Verse, chapter 3 and verse 15. And you'll start to see how we are going to see the Messiah. That is Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 15. Notice, this is after the fall. 
He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, you being Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Okay, so what can I gather about this coming one, this Messiah? Well, one, I know that he will be born of a woman, right? Between your seed and her seed. So I know that this Messiah, in its infant stage, right? In its infant embryonic stage, he's going to be born of a woman. I also know that he's fatally going to destroy Satan. He says, he will bruise you on the head. And I also know that he's going to be wounded as well, right? So now, this is starting to build up, okay? In Genesis chapter 9 through 11, we know that one will come from the Noahic line through the Shemite line. Shem, remember his three sons? Who remembers that? Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? That the Christ is going to come through the Shem line. And Shem is the father of the Semites, right? So all Arabic and Jewish peoples come from Shem, okay? And then we understand through Genesis chapter 12, he says, go forth from your country and from your relatives. I will bless your nation. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now God is blessing Abraham that in him, out of him, he will have the blessing over for all those who turn to faith in the Messiah. So now, I not only know that it's from, he's from a woman, that he's going to destroy Satan, that he is going to be wounded, that he's going to come through the Shemite line, but now I know he's going to be a Jew. He's going to be a Hebrew because Abraham is the father of the Hebrews. Do you see how it's building? Then... Uh, in Genesis 25, I know that this one is going to come through Isaac's line. In Genesis 26, I know that Je uh, uh, it's going to come through Israel's line. Because now Jacob, instead of there's Jacob and Esau, now I know that the Messiah is going to come through Israel's line. And in the last chapter, look at Genesis 49. Genesis 49. I'm just giving this to you by way of example of how does the Bible progress on itself? How does it show? How does it compile on itself? Genesis chapter 49. And verse 8. This is... This is... Um, Jacob on his deathbed and he's blessing Israel on his deathbed. His other name, Israel, on his deathbed and he's blessing his sons. And he prophesies about Judah, Judah, one of his sons. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And then verse 10, and notice the pivot of what he calls, what he says about Judah. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff between him, between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And so now I know that the scepter is a symbol of rule and Shiloh is going to be the peace that comes, right? 
And so I know that the Messiah is going to be born of a woman, will fatally destroy Satan, will be wounded as well, comes through Noah, comes through Abraham, comes through Isaac, comes through Jacob, and now is going to be the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. And this, brothers and sisters, if you read Scripture, you will see it is always pointing to the coming one. The Old Testament is always looking forward towards Christ. The New Testament is looking back at what Christ has done. The Scriptures is all about Jesus Christ. You can say this of the example of, of Jesus Christ through the books of the Bible. Leviticus shows the priesthood, and now Jesus is the greater priest. Exodus shows a, a people being delivered out of slavery. And then in Colossians, it's, it's that same imagery as us in our sin, in our slavery, being removed from that to freedom in Christ. You could go and talk about how Micah says that, the Christ would come. How Nahum says the Christ will come. How Jonah is a type of Christ. He is, as he was three days in the belly of a fish, Jesus says, I will be three days in the heart of the earth. And he was talking about his burial in the tomb. Scripture is progressive. Revelation is progressive. And that's why, back to Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, and in many ways. And so as these prophets wrote down these scriptures, they could only see in part. It's amazing. They, they, they knew there was a Messiah coming, but they could only see in part. Even as you go to Isaiah 53, and as Isaiah was writing it down, he knows that there's going to be a suffering servant, but he can't really see completely like New Testament believers. It's amazing. Because now there is the pivot, verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in Son. And here is the amazing reality. If you are a believer in Christ, because we have completed revelation, not partial revelation, you actually see more in completion than the prophets did. That is astounding to me. If Moses, in fact, wrote Genesis, which I believe he did, he only knows that portion of the Messiah that we were talking about. He only knows that. I know in full. I know that the Messiah is going to come. I know he's going to be born in, and he was going to grow up in Nazareth. I know he was going to die on the cross. I know he was going to be stabbed with a spear. Isaiah 53 says he was going to be pierced. We don't understand that. But I know what it says in Luke. He was pierced for you and for me. He has spoken to us in Son. Now, secondly, point two, get the point of revelation. The point of revelation is Christ. The point of revelation is manifested. And he says in these last days, perhaps it's the time indicator, but I think it's a declaration that was known about the Messiah, that when the Messiah comes, he will reveal who he is. If you read in John chapter 4, when the uh, Samaritan woman was there and Christ came and she says, I know that the, when the Messiah is coming, who is also called Christ, when he comes, he will declare all things to us. 
So the culmination and the whole point of why we have all of Scripture is not so that I could just have a better marriage. It's not so that I could rescue my marriage. It's not so I know how to raise my kids. Although all of those things are important, the whole point of Scripture culminates in this high apex of the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the behalf of sinners. The point of revelation is a person, not principles, not just morals. It is a person who died for you and me. The supremacy of Christ in Revelation. He has spoken to us in his son. Now here is amazing language. Because in the original Greek language, there is no pronoun, possessive pronoun, his. It simply says he has spoken to us in son. And so if you see the progress of how the writer is writing this. He says, God used to do this, and he used to talk this way, and he used to reveal himself this way, and he gave it in part, and the prophet saw in part, but now he has spoken to us in the very expression, and the very language of his own son, revealing himself, coming in the flesh. John, chapter 1, verse 18. Go to John. You have to see this text. We go to this text often, but John chapter 1, verse 18, 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time and lived. You could add that, right? No one's seen him and lived, right? Got burned up, right? The only begotten God, there's only one begotten God that is Jesus Christ. You remember John 3, 16? God so loved the world that he gave his what? Begotten son, right? His monogenes, his one unique son. Who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And as we've talked about in the past, Jesus has explained God the Father. What does that even mean? Right? The word therefore explained is the Greek word where we get exegete. And all exegete means is we draw the meaning out of the text. We allow the text to be the text and we draw what it is saying. Okay? And so what he's saying here is that Jesus Christ draws out, fulfills for us in the flesh, all that God is. So, if you want to know what God is like, and you want to know what he hates, and you want to know what he loves, and you want to know how his heart is, you study the life of Jesus. Because the more you know Jesus, the more you know God, because he has explained him. He has spoken to us in son. Go back to Hebrews and 
Now he says, back to Hebrews. Did I lose my spot? I did. Hebrews. Chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Then we have the supremacy of Christ in his position, whom he appointed heir of all things. You notice, what does that mean? Look at verse 8. This is incredible. In verse 8, he's quoting the Psalms, okay? The Psalms was originally written for God the Father. And he says in verse 8, but of the Son, he says, notice, he says, I will attribute, I will attribute the highest rank. I will attribute the greatest of lauding. I will give him the greatest of praise. He says here, of the Son, he says, your throne, the Son's throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice he says here, verse 8, Hebrews 1, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Where did we see that language? Do you remember? Genesis 49. Genesis 49. He will have the highest of positions. And now Christ, the supremacy of Christ in creation. And it says here, through whom he also made the world. And we know this. We know this. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. I want to end here as we um, take communion and to see the high and lofty language of Colossians talking about who Jesus is. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15. He displayed the rulers and the authorities. He made public display of them over triumph, having triumphed over them. Uh, let's see. Chapter 1, verse 15. I'm in the wrong chapter. Okay. Notice he says here, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is, he is the highest status. That does not mean he was created. He was given the status of firstborn. That is an ancient way of saying he gets the highest of everything. Okay. By him, all things were created. By whom? Christ, remember the pronoun. By him, by Christ, all things were created. You remember in Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians chapter 1 says, by him, all things were created. So in Genesis, when God created the world, Jesus was right there creating. Notice, he says, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, all things have been created he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is to have first place in everything, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And so we go back and we end in Hebrews 1. What is the point of Scripture? The point of Scripture, brothers and sisters, is Christ himself. And the writer of Hebrews is going to expand on it. And the reason why this is so important is because when we celebrate his death 
and we celebrate the sacrifice given for you and me. We are not celebrating any particular other man's, any other common man's death. We are praising the king of the universe who is beyond the heavens, who came and put on flesh to die for you and me. If you don't know the Savior, let me tell you, there is a God who loves you so much that he, is, he has sent his son and so that you can hear this message and trust in the Savior. And if you put your faith in Christ and in him alone, all of his righteousness will be placed on you and all of your sins will be placed on him and he will wash you from your sins and he will change your life such that you want a desire to follow him. That is the gospel. And this is the Christ who we love and who we preach. Father, we pray that you would help us, help us to praise you and to celebrate what you have done. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have revealed yourself through Christ, that all that you are, you are the exact representation of the nature. Colossians says you are the image of, his, of, of God. You even said, Jesus, that I and the Father are one. Thank you for coming. Thank you for thinking of us. Thank you for dying on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.